What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Countries around the globe are clamping down on the sale of unproven treatments for COVID-19. Not in China. Authorities claim most of the country's cases were treated with traditional Chinese medicine, remedies that they would like to export. And the raging bushfires that started last year in Australia were a reminder that human activities make blazes more likely. But scientists are figuring out how much animal activities can play a role too, both in making fires worse and preventing them. First up, though. In a time of crisis in Britain, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's popularity has soared. I've today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. The nation rallied behind him after he was sent to intensive care with COVID-19. Although we mourn every day those who are taken from us in such numbers, and though the struggle is by no means over, we are now making progress in this incredible national battle against coronavirus. Despite the high approval ratings, the way Mr. Johnson and his government have handled the spread of the coronavirus has come under scrutiny. There have been questions about whether the lockdown came too late and how well frontline medical staff have been protected. For now, the prime minister is still recovering. The leadership is in the hands of his senior ministers. Today, they're expected to announce a further three weeks of lockdown as other countries in Europe begin their exit strategies. More than 12,000 people have died of the disease in Britain, though infection rates are falling. There are suggestions the country could end up the worst-hit part of the continent. There's been a lot of criticism of Britain's COVID response. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist. And it starts with not having adequate testing facilities and not being able to roll those out as fast as some other developed countries. There's also the fact that the lockdown probably came rather too late, and that may be one reason why we've seen that particularly horrible spike in deaths across the country and quite a, a, a longish-lasting peak. And then there's a third question about getting protective clothing to the front line in hospitals, which are very badly affected, as are the staff who, who work there. And that particularly that last point of concern has, I think, risen in salience very strongly across the last few days. And, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been absent recently, seems he may be for some time yet. How have things gone in his absence? How are his stand-ins doing? This government was built very strongly around Boris Johnson, his figure, his personality, his 
preferences. He has a big majority in Parliament. What no one had foreseen is what would then happen if the Prime Minister was unavoidably out of action, as he has been, both catching the virus and now in the recovery period. So there is a sense of ministers like sort of knights at an old court battling with each other for their place. So if you're someone like Matt Hancock, a lot of people are seeing in Britain on their television every day, he's a young, rather thrusting minister. He's Secretary of State for Health. Expanding the NHS faster than the growth in demand has been a critical objective throughout this crisis. And it means that every single person who's accessed NHS care has been able to get the very best available. His concern is certainly to avoid as much as possible being uh, blamed for where we are right now. But also, one has to say in fairness, he wants to protect the NHS. He wants to make sure that no one comes out of the lockdown until we're pretty certain that the worst of COVID-19 is over. There's a bit of tension there with someone like Rishi Sunak, also a very ambitious minister, new chancellor, so finance minister. We have also put in place unprecedented and significant measures to protect people's jobs, their incomes, their livelihoods, and indeed the businesses that employ them. And he's saying, look, we've got to get people back to work. We've got to have a a staged return to normality because our economy is taking such a pounding. We can't go on like this indefinitely. And the figure who is officially standing in for Boris Johnson is Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary. The government is united in our focus, our determination and our national mission to defeat the coronavirus and defeat it we will. He's very close to Boris Johnson. He's a lawyer by training. He's quite forensic. He can handle the committees quite well and by all accounts is pulling the strings of this crisis together uh, fairly well at the heart of government. But as far as the public are concerned, he's a bit of an unknown quantity. So that feels a bit like you've got an understudy coming in for the really big part in the play at a crucial moment. And, and how much is, is this administration uh, being held to account in, in how it's dealt with the crisis so far? Well, emergency powers were passed by Parliament that enables uh, things like the, the lockdown to go ahead and police to be able to tell you to get out of the way if you're not social distancing, that kind of thing. The issue now is how Parliament, which is very important in the, the British system, is how that should be convened and can it work in the way that you'd expect it to work in holding the government to account, but also being able to go through the many areas of legislation that are affected by COVID-19, the response to it, but also things like civil liberties and uh, how long you, you can actually tell people to stay at home. With that in mind, there is strong pressure to bring back Parliament, over 600 MPs, remember, virtually by April the 21st, which is when the first tranche of emergency powers run out. How that's going to happen is going to be quite interesting in terms of the security of doing Parliament online. And in terms of an exit strategy, other countries, certainly in Europe, are at the beginnings of theirs. What signals has the the British government sent about that? The problem for the British government and exit strategy is that it doesn't have a fully fledged prime minister in role to give a casting vote to one clear direction. The UK death toll is still very high. 
even as infection subsides. So the risk is far greater than in a comparable country like, say, Germany, for instance. I think what we're being told now or messaged quite strongly is that we've got three weeks of lockdown in an intense way. And after that, there will be a staged exit strategy, probably beginning with schools beginning to to go back. But the big argument will be what is social distancing in an exit strategy moment, particularly in the density of a place like London, whereas as soon as you go out, you're already almost cheek by jowl with people, whether you like it or not. How much can you preserve social distancing and have a tailing off exit strategy? Or once you've gone back, are you fully back into normal life, in which case there is a risk that the virus will return? And I gather that that is the subject of some pretty heated arguments around the virtual cabinet table. And and when all is said and done, do you, how well do you think this this administration, Boris Johnson in, in particular, will will emerge in terms of the how they will be viewed as the, the the champions of the British people through all of this? Boris Johnson will, I think, emerge from this in quite good standing with a lot of British people. That might sound surprising, but a lot of people, I think, have warmed to him because he suffered from the virus himself. I think he's been seen as good at rallying national spirits. That plays to his natural ebullience, his character before he got ill. He was on there on television every day, was urging people to pull together. There's a slightly Churchillian overtones in the way he was addressing the nation. I think he'll score reasonably highly on that. I think he will score far less likely in the government and health system as a whole for being underprepared, a bit fragmented at the beginning, late to the lockdown. I think it will look like a government which was okay at handling matters when the crisis got going, but ignored a lot of the warning signals as the virus was getting a grip. And there will be questions there about how well government, we think we've got a reasonably efficient government machine in the UK did work when push came to shove and how it's going to look in comparison with some of its European neighbours. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. It was good to talk. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Officials across the world are advising people to be wary of alternative treatments for COVID-19. In China, the opposite is true. Remedies known as traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, are being heavily promoted by the state. Nothing's been proven about TCM's effectiveness in treating COVID-19. But even so, Beijing is keen to export these remedies to other parts of the globe. Very soon after the lockdown of Wuhan in late January, China's health authorities began adding several traditional Chinese remedies to the official list of treatments that doctors were supposed to follow when helping patients who are suffering from COVID-19. Mark Johnson is our Beijing correspondent. 
The government also sent 5,000 traditional medicine practitioners to Hubei province to dispense these medicines. That's 5,000 out of a total of about 40,000 healthcare workers that the government sent to Hubei to help deal with the outbreak. And at a press conference in late March, health officials said that 90% of people in China who had contracted the coronavirus had received some kind of traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM as it is often called, as part of their treatment. And they also said that these treatments had been 90% effective, though they didn't really explain how they'd worked that out. Well, first explain what traditional Chinese medicine TCM actually is. What does that mean? Well, TCM is a shorthand for a broad range of different practices. It includes things like acupuncture, which are well known in the West. It also includes various types of massage therapy and moxibustion, which involves burning plants or plant matter near the skin. Now, health officials say that all of these were employed in some regard in the fight against COVID-19, but really what they're focusing on are traditional remedies. And in this case, they're talking a lot about three particular decoctions that are produced from boiling together upwards of 20 different botanical ingredients. And these are being recommended, these are being used in addition to or, or instead of what I guess would be called Western medicine. The government is not saying that traditional remedies can cure COVID-19, and it says that people in critical conditions definitely need modern life-saving treatments such as the provision of oxygen. What it is saying is that it thinks its treatments helped to prevent people with mild and moderate symptoms from becoming critically ill, and that it shortened the overall recovery times. And what do you make of those claims? Do you think there's a germ of truth in there? Well, the the scientific evidence that they've provided to support these claims is rather scant. We know now that in the vast majority of cases, patients with COVID-19 get better without much medical intervention. The people making big claims about TCM have not really produced any rigorous studies to prove their patients had better outcomes than control groups, for example. So I think it's fair to say that for the moment, those claims are presently unproven. And why is the Chinese government interested in promoting TCM as part of or even a big part of its treatment strategies? Well, people involved in traditional medicine in China have long sought to use epidemics to prove their treatments. If you go back to the 80s, for example, TCM practitioners also made big claims about how their efforts could help people who were suffering from HIV. Now, in recent years, the TCM industry in China has enjoyed very vocal support from the Chinese government. That's partly because there is big money in TCM in China. There is a desire to promote exports of TCM ingredients. And it's also the case that the government in China has for several years been trying to promote many different aspects of traditional Chinese culture, TCM included. And it's doing this in part as a way to promote patriotism, to promote nationalism among the populace. Potentially in the knowledge that it's not effective, or do you believe that the authorities truly believe their claims? It's a huge different variety of medicines and treatments. And the problem is that there is very little solid evidence being produced to suggest that these are effective or even indeed that they are not effective. The TCM industry has not traditionally been well regulated. Many TCM practitioners outright refuse to carry out randomized control tests that might provide more information about the efficacy of their treatments, they say that these kinds of trial methods don't actually properly show the benefits of TCM. And I guess there's a danger that people turn to TCM believing it can do magical things that it cannot, and in so doing, avoid treatments that are actually known to work. That's certainly possible. There is significant controversy about this even within China itself. 
There have been uh, a few cases in recent years where people have made a big deal, for example, on social media about how they are dispensing with the modern treatments that are available for them for problems such as cancer and instead choosing to use only traditional Chinese medicines and they have often not had good outcomes. And the other part of this is that traditional remedies sometimes also include animal parts. One of the recommended treatments for people with COVID-19 includes powdered bear bile amongst its ingredients and the harvesting of that can involve great cruelty. In the wake of the coronavirus crisis, the Chinese government has banned the sale of wildlife for meat, in part, I think, because it is aware that live animal markets is one of the places where this virus could have jumped from animals into humans. But it hasn't, for the moment, banned the sale of wildlife for use in traditional Chinese medicines. So that remains a loophole in its legislation. But what about the international view of this? I mean, in particular, since you say China wants to export this know-how, I mean, how is the use of TCM in treating COVID-19 being viewed elsewhere? I don't presently see much evidence that foreign countries are turning to TCM in a big way in their efforts to treat COVID-19. What's not in doubt is that the Chinese government is very keen to promote it. So TCM practitioners have joined Chinese medical teams sent to help manage outbreaks in Cambodia, Iraq and Italy. And the government says it's donated traditional medicines to other countries too. Now, even before this outbreak, China was talking about building a health silk road involving countries that are involved in its Belt and Road International Investment Scheme. And as part of that, it has been talking about building TCM cooperation and training centres in countries that lie along the path of the Belt and Road. It's also the case that the promotion of TCM enjoys some cover from the World Health Organization. Now, back in 2014, the WHO said that in a report on traditional medicines from all around the world, it said it believed that traditional medicines, if they were proven to be safe, effective and of high quality, could go some way to plugging gaps in healthcare in very poor countries where there is almost no access to modern medicine. During this crisis, it removed some wording it had put on its website saying that herbal remedies would not be effective against the virus and may indeed be harmful. It said that it had decided this wording was too broad and it acknowledged that some people in some places were using traditional remedies to alleviate mild symptoms of the virus. Quite why it chose to do that at that time, we just don't know. And I guess that that just speaks to the kind of uncertainty there is about this stuff, neither that it definitely does nor definitely does not work. And I guess that won't be resolved until there are some random controlled clinical trials of the sort that, that get other drugs approved. Yes, the Chinese government says it is keen for the TCM industry to subject more of its products to more rigorous scientific trials. But there is some lingering doubt within the industry itself about whether that is the right way for it to proceed. And I also think there is some question over how far the government would push ahead with that if trials were not producing the kind of answers that it wants to see. Thanks very much for your time, Mark. Thank you. Find out more on research efforts to tackle the virus on Babbage, a weekly podcast on science and technology. This week's episode is on the all-important hunt for a vaccine. 
What we are doing is trialling the vaccine to see how it defends against the progression of the infection in our ferrets over a two-week period. Listen to Babbage wherever you get your podcasts. The Australian bushfires that started last year caused destruction on an epic scale. 33 people were killed by the fires, and more than 3,000 homes were destroyed. We know that human activity can directly and indirectly fan the flames of wildfires. But new research is looking into the role that animals play in blazes. Animals, in their behaviors, shape the way that fires form. Some species can suppress fire, and some can promote it. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. New work led by Claire Foster at Australian National University in Canberra is showing the diversity of species that shape fire both for the better and worse is quite considerable. So which animals are good at suppressing fires then? How does that work? The best firefighting species are browsers, which are animals like antelope. These animals eat the leaves off the base of trees. That is extraordinarily useful when you've got a minor fire that is racing around across dry grass and tinder that's at the base of a forest because with the browsers having moved through, what they've effectively done is eradicated all of the low-lying leaves that could be dried out and allow the fire to jump from the ground up into the canopy and allow it to graduate from what would otherwise be a mild burn to crown fires, where the fire really sets off and takes out vast chunks of forest. They're effectively creating a vertical fire break that stops the fire from moving upwards. There are a number of species that create trails through forests. When deer create deer trails, that stamping means that there's no vegetation where they've been walking around, and that makes it just that little bit harder for fire to move from one bit of forest to the next. So it creates a horizontal fire break. Oddly, one of the groups of species that are best at creating fire breaks, according to this new report, are ants. Their tiny feet repeatedly crossing the same bit of earth pound away all vegetation and effectively create a horizontal fire break. And conversely, there are some animals, some animal activities that that fan the flames, as it were. There are a number of species, particularly insects, that infect trees and can make the trees much more vulnerable to burning. There are even insects called lace bugs that stimulate plants to create lignin in their leaves. Lignin takes a much longer period of time to degrade on the forest floor. That means it's tender and dry and ready to be burned for a lot longer, and it's harder for decomposers to break it down. Another couple of characters that are decidedly unhelpful in the firefighting front are the Plains Visacha, which is a South American rodent that likes to build little piles of wood and leaves. Once it's done and had its babies, the Plains Visacha leaves this pile of wood and leaves to dry out. And what they do is create little bonfires in waiting. Well, we know that the threat of wildfires is only growing greater with time. Is future firefighting going to involve more coordination with animals and, and what they do? I think it makes a lot of sense for researchers to look at the species that are in the forest that they're concerned about and say, yes, this forest hasn't had a fire for quite a while, but it's got a rich population of browsers. That suggests that if it has a fire, the fire should remain mild and not end up in the crown. Or alternatively, 
wow, this forest is absolutely loaded with plains of Isacha, which are building bonfires and waiting everywhere. This forest is going to need a lot of attention. It's about knowing what the animals are doing to modify what the future fire is going to be like, i.e., we're going to see crown fires here or we're not, so that firefighters can prepare themselves accordingly. Thanks for your time, Matt. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.